Well, good morning. Let's uh, go ahead and just open up uh, with a word of prayer as we begin to open up God's word. Heavenly Father, we again just thank you for this morning. And Father, we continue to just meditate on that last song of just how great your faithfulness is. Father, as we open up your word this morning, as we read the story of Joshua crossing the Jordan, I pray that your faithfulness that you show us now, the faithfulness that you showed us in the past, and the faithfulness that you'll continue to show us in the future would just ring loudly and true in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, if I haven't met you, met you yet, my name's Joel. Um, I'm the family pastor here at Cross Point. Uh, going on about three months now, so I've had a good chance to uh, get to know some of you and uh, just begin to grasp a little bit about what, uh, what kind of church you are, who, who you are as a church, and, and what you're trying to accomplish as a church. So I want to, I got to speak last Sunday night, so some of you that were there got to hear, I guess, how I define my role as family pastor. And I want to take just a chance before we um, get into the book of Joshua to uh, share with you, I guess, my vision for Crosspoint, how I see us as a church um, growing and, and what role I see all of you playing in that. Uh, what I like about family pastor is that I kind of see it as all-encompassing. Right, like if a gym comes up to you, you can run away saying, I'm out working with junior hires. But if I come up to you, you really can't run away because I've got a specific role for you and a family. Right, like a family, and not just our own you know, bloodline family, but as a church, I see us as an entire family. That the person you're sitting next to you is a family member within the body of Christ. So I break up families into uh, the role of grandparents, the role of parents, and also the role of kids and teenagers. And I think each, each demographic, each family group is especially vital to the health of the church, but also to the health of our city. Um, as, we, as we talk about grandparents first this morning, I'm going to use a bad word. Um, but when I say it, I want you to understand that my, my ultimate goal is to bring a whole lot of respect to this word. And that's the word old. Right? I've talked to a lot of people and I've been told, don't call me a senior, because that makes me sound like, like I can barely get around anymore. I was like, all right, I won't call you a senior. And I've been thinking, don't call me elderly, because that just makes me sound even worse. I was like, all right, I won't call you elderly. And I've heard, well, you know, call, call them seasoned. I thought, are they a steak? And who wants to be called seasoned? So I finally decided, you know, really the easiest way to just classify it, and, and I mean this with the utmost respect, and I'm going to share why, is that... Um, there's just older people. Some people are old. And, <laughs> but, but here's the reality of it, is that before you walk off and leave, the reality is one of the greatest callings in all of Scripture is to be old. One of the greatest roles in all of Scripture is to be old. So I think that's one of the things, realities of our church, that we need to grasp and that we need to embrace and that we need to run with. Because we've got old people here. And that's a great thing. You've got an incredible calling as an older person. Uh, how many grandparents and great-grandparents are in here? How many of you absolutely hate being grandparents? Good, you got that one right. Yeah, none of you hate being grandparents, right? You all love it. 
Who doesn't love going to see their grandkids? Who doesn't love seeing the great-grandkids? Who doesn't love spoiling the grandkids? How many of you pray for your, your kids and grandkids each day? Yeah. That's an incredible ministry. Like, I believe my success and where I am today, as much as I like to say it's because I make a lot of good decisions and, and do good things, is really because of A, God's grace, and B, because I've got grandparents on both sides of the family, great-grandparents and parents who pray for me every day. Without that, I'm not where I am today. I believe that. And I believe each of you have, have kids and grandkids that you're praying for. And some of you are seeing the fruits of those daily prayers, and some of you are still waiting on those fruits. But it's an incredible ministry you have to continue to pray. Really, as, as I look at you as grandparents, you're really called to reflect Jesus through your legacy. That as you look back on your life and you begin looking at this legacy that God's called you to, you're called to reflect Jesus in, the, in that legacy. Really, every, every demographic of the family is called to reflect Jesus in, in a different way. As grandparents, I believe you're called to reflect Jesus and the legacy you leave behind. That your kids look back and say, you know what? I know Jesus was an incredible part of mom and dad's lives. Because I saw it daily in how they lived and how they talked and how they prayed. That's one of the most vital legacies you leave behind as grandparents. As parents... Um, we embrace this role to, to reflect Jesus within our marriages, to reflect Jesus within our parenting. That, that the role of parents comes in where you're directly in, in the line of fire. You're directly in this line of fire if you're currently raising up this next generation. And that's a big task. That's a, that's a big role. I think um, one of the most effective ways we do that is... It's not with uh, a bunch of other, you know, how-to books for, you know, have a new kid by Friday. Um, you know, that, that whole series now, uh, I think I just saw one, it's have a new husband by Friday. So ladies, if you're interested, you can go on Amazon and get that. Terrible idea. But, but we have all these books, we have all these ways for, you know, how to raise a good kid. How to make your kids behave just a little bit better. We'll go back to the grandparents. How many of you watched your kids go off to college and your thought was, you know what? I'm really proud of them. They're kind of on the fence about Jesus, but man, they got good grades. How many of you thought that? No, not a single one of you. Yeah, it's great that your kid can get good grades. It's great that they're well-behaved. It's great that they respect, they respect you know, parents and other adults. And that's all part of being a follower of Jesus. But really the goal of parents, as we reflect Jesus within our marriage and within our parenting, is that we raise up passionate followers of Jesus. The next generation in the church is growing up within our own households and within our own church building. As, uh, as kids, I believe the role of kids and teenagers is they simply reflect Jesus through joy and laughter. And I think that's an incredibly important role that they bring to the church, is they bring together this role of joy and laughter. And if you're having a bad day, go help out in the nursery. Do it. Uh, but but they, it's, it's, it's hard to, to be around a kid and not smile, to be around a kid and not laugh, to be around a kid and not be cheered up a little because they just said something goofy or off the wall. And, and we need that in the church. We need that in a family. So that's, that's really how I see 
the role of family playing out within the church, from the grandparents to the parents to the kids. As grandparents, you reflect the legacy of Jesus in your life. Parents, you reflect Jesus through your marriage and your parenting. And kids, teenagers, you reflect Jesus through your joy and your laughter. So that's uh, just kind of intro as we get into Joshua and begin looking at how this begins to play out within us as a church. Uh, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 4. Uh, guys, help me if you want to head to the back. Uh, that'd be great. But Joshua chapter 4, leading up to this, I want you to just imagine with me for a second, okay? I want you to imagine with me that you were a kid, and your parents were one of those Israelites that came up out of Egypt. And growing up, you heard all these great stories. You know, your favorite story was the one of uh, when God sent the plague of frogs, and your mom got out of the bed and stepped on her first frog and screamed. And you loved when your dad told you that story. You love the story your grandpa told you of, um, you love the story your grandpa told you of when they were crossing the Red Sea. And he went noodling and he stuck his hand in the water and a big giant fish, you know, caught onto it. And he pulled it out and he carried that fish across the Red Sea. And that fish was this big. And each time he told you the story, the fish got bigger and bigger. You love the story of uh, the battle of, against the Amorites when God told Moses, if you hold your rod up in the air, if you hold your arms in the air, we'll win this battle. And every time Moses' arms got tired, he brought it down, and the Israelites started losing until two of his friends held his arms up for him. And the Israelites won the battle. And you grew up hearing these stories and loving these stories, and they were the best stories ever. But 40 years have gone by. Because you've wandered the desert, you've waited for that generation to die off. And you've got kids of your own now, and those stories are really just stories at this point. You know, there weren't that many frogs. The fish was really, you know, that big, and it really just kind of swam too far and jumped out of the water. The battle against the Amorites, that was still pretty cool. But really, and that was, those were stories for yesterday. Those were the good old days. That's what everyone else called it. Those good old days when God was performing miracle after miracle. And you're saying, we don't really see those miracles anymore. God doesn't really show up. He provides manna. That's what we get. We get the same meal for 40 years, day after day after day. That's God's miracle to us. And then Moses comes and he speaks to you and he gives kind of this farewell address. And you're thinking, wait a second. We've got this promise that we're going to eventually enter this promised land. Moses, our leader, has just given us this farewell address. No one's seen his body in a couple days. All of a sudden, Joshua is now in command. And Joshua is now giving you this command to pack up all your belongings because you're entering the promised land. And now you're excited. And you see all the soldiers and the warriors, and they're putting their armor on. They're getting their spears ready because you know you're going to battle. You pack up all your belongings. You see the priests, these men that you completely respect, pick up the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, and begin marching out in front of you. And pretty soon the whole nation's walking along with you. And there's this excitement, there's this passion. And all of a sudden you hear the sound of rushing water. And this river that you have to cross, it normally is about 100 feet wide. And you can kind of wade yourself across it. It's now at flood stage. And it's a whole lot higher. And it's a whole lot longer. And it's covering all these you know, big bushes and all this brush to the point that there's no way an entire nation's getting across it. And you just kind of sink and you think, man we got to wait again. And, you know, that one sarcastic guy that somehow always ends up next, he says, you know what? In the good old days, God would have just parted this. You say, yeah, right, the good old days, huh? 
So you wait three days, and you're getting, getting patient again, and finally Joshua comes up and says, hey guys, pack your stuff. God says, we're crossing this river. And you think, this is great, we're finally moving again, but the water hasn't receded. Is this just Joshua getting impatient again like Moses did? Are we all in trouble? Are we going to end up wandering again? But you get with everyone, you pack your stuff up, and as you're waiting by this river, you see these priests again that you respect, carrying God's presence, and you see them going towards the water, and all of a sudden they step into the water, and you're thinking, what are they doing? They're going to drop the Ark of the Covenant? And as soon as they step in the water, all of a sudden you see this water, this rushing river, come to a complete stop. And it backs up. And you're thinking, what's going on? And all of a sudden, all the ground dries up. And there's this giant wall of water just sitting there with these men that you respect holding the presence of God standing in front of this riverbed, in front of this wall of water on dry land. And you feel this tingle going on your spine. You get these goosebumps. Because all of a sudden you realize, wow, this is, this is my miracle. You're looking around and you see people starting to get excited. Again, that guy is, ends up next to you again. He says, the good old days, right? And you're like, yeah. Who needs the Red Sea? Who needs the frogs? We just saw water stop. And that's where we pick up in Joshua chapter 4. And I've got some guys here who are uh, going to kind of help me illustrate this out as I read it. So um, if you turn your Bibles, Joshua chapter 4, verse 1. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe. And tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priest stood, and to carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay the night. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from, Israel, from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone and on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to the camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. Now the priest who carried the Ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people. Just as Moses had directed Joshua, the people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the Ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh crossed over, armed in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stages before. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of Jordan. 
he said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. They set up essentially the stones of remembrance. Turn the music off. Uh, they set up these stones of remembrance at this altar God commanded the people. These rocks, every time they saw them, they would remember what God had done, what God had did that day. They would remember the time when they waited for 40 years for that miracle, for that promise to enter the promised land. When God stopped the Jordan River at flood stage and they walked across on dry ground. When they passed the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence literally standing there, almost holding back the water. To remember that time when those priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant had to actually step in the water before it would dry up. You see, one of the... uh, One of the hardest sayings, hardest truths we have to grasp is that when we begin to forget what God's done, our faith begins to falter. When we start going through life and we forget all the wonderful things God's done, all those testimonies we have, all those stories, all those miracles, our faith begins to falter. Right? That was was a big first step for those priests to take into that water. Trusting that God was going to actually stop it. These weren't the same priests that witnessed the 12 plagues. These weren't the same priests that witnessed the Red Sea parting. This was going to be their first, their first full-on, real-life real miracle that didn't involve manna. And, and, and they took that step of faith. I think one of the hardest things we struggle with is that God answers a prayer... And we're so quick then to move on to the next thing. God meets a need, and we say, all right, thank you. And then we're so quick to move on to the next thing. That we forget about, we forget about our testimony. We forget about what God's doing. God commanded the Israelites all through the book of Joshua to set up these memorials, to set up these altars. So any time people saw them, they would know, you know what? The God of the Israelites, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he did something extraordinary here. So that the Israelites, as they began to conquer this land that God had promised them, could then take their kids back and, you know, on vacation and say, hey, see this rock pile right here? This is where God stopped the Jordan River from flowing. You see this one over here? This is where God crushed the walls of Jericho. You see this pile over here? Yeah, this is where the sun stood still for a day. I was in that battle. I was fighting that battle, and I watched that sun stand still for a day. Don't forget what God's done, son. Don't forget what God's done, daughter. God commands them to build up these stones so they'll always remember, not just for them, but for that next generation. 
So as they grew older, as they became the grandparents of their nation, they could still carry on that legacy, and they could still remind the next generations, you might be struggling now, it might be hard now, but you remember those rocks? You remember that pile of stones? Through the book of Judges, you see the Israelites go through that cycle over and over. They turn their backs on God, another nation comes and defeats them, takes them into slavery, they... They feel bad for what they did. They apologize. They repent. And God leads someone out to bring them back to freedom. And you see that cycle repeat itself over and over and over again. That cycle's repeated because a lot of times we forget the rocks. That cycle gets repeated in our own lives because we forget those stones of remembrance. We forget what God's done. Deuteronomy chapter 6 Uh, Moses has been given the law, and he gives this command to the parents. He says, Hear, O Israel, it's actually to the whole nation, and then talks to parents. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Parents, what stones do you have in your house? What stones of remembrance do you carry with you? As reminders to not just yourself, but to your kids of of God's protection over your family. What testimony do you carry with you? Maybe it's a testimony of healing. Of when no other doctor could help you, but God sure did. Make sure your kids know that. Maybe the doctor did heal you. Make sure the kids know the only reason the doctor did is because God's given us the knowledge to, to heal sickness and disease. Make these testimonies real. And maybe your kids are just little and they don't quite grasp this whole idea of, of paying bills now God provides during the tighter months. They don't quite grasp the whole you know, health being, versus being sick. But I guarantee you they grasp Bible stories. Share with them those Bible stories. Share with them those great stories from God's word. Share with them your favorite Bible stories as a kid. Let that become their first stones of remembrance, those first stories when they begin to realize just who God is and how much God loves them. So I believe our goal as parents and grandparents, when it comes to our kids... Until they get to this age where they can begin thinking kind of cognitively and begin, you know, thinking, what, what does this really mean to me? You've really got one purpose, and that's to let your kids know God loves them. From, from the time they're a child to, you know, junior high, hammer that point home over and over and over again. God loves you. You know what? You just hit your sister. I just punished you. I sent you to your room. But I still love you. You know Why? Because God loves you. Hammer that point home over and over and over again so that they cling to that stone of remembrance and no matter what they're doing, God loves them. Because that will carry them on through junior high, high school, college, and beyond. If you lay that foundation of Jesus, lay that foundation of Jesus' love for them and share those Bible stories. Let them know it. Yesterday, uh, my dad and my sisters and uh, my son Zach and I went out fishing early in the morning as we were driving up uh, um, 
to, to the spot where we're going to go fishing, there was this big giant cross up in the mountains. And my sister Shadi said, there's a cross, there's a cross. And Zach said, that's where Jesus died. And Shadi said, but he's not there anymore. And Zach said, I know, because he's up in heaven now. And they got excited, and they were just going back and forth in this dialogue. Because they knew. They, they knew the story of the cross. You can ask Zach to tell you, um, you know, the, the David and Goliath story. That's one of his favorite stories. And, and even when David gets to the part and he slings that stone and he throws it in the air, he'll come and hit you on the head just to let you know that's where the rock hit Goliath. It hurts. But, but share those Bible stories while they're young. As they get older, share those real life stories. I look at my life when I think about my stones of remembrance. I think, uh, you know, one of my first stones, as much as I fought it and hated it was when my family moved out to California from the Midwest. Because I can look back now and say there's no way I'm where I am today if we didn't make that move. Hated it at the time. Uh, I can look at another stone of remembrance when uh, the first time I got a chance to preach and I passed out. I did. I, I was going through the sermon, and it was a youth Sunday, and usually they had you know, the chairs back here for the pastors to sit on, and, uh, and I knew that, but they had moved those chairs because they wanted to fit the whole youth group up there, and I got through my sermon in about 10 minutes, and the page started going black, and I thought, just make it back to those chairs, and I heard, catch them, and I woke up outside, and I thought, that's it, I'm done, I'm never preaching again, and then uh, you know, a while later, I got the you know, another chance to preach, and I said, all right, I'll do it, and I uh, was nervous. There's this kind of nervous excitement thinking, what if I pass out? This is it. You know, you can't, you can't come back from passing out twice, and uh, you know, th- that morning at the same time, my uh, grandpa was uh, dying of cancer, and my dad had gone out to be with him, and he came back, and that morning before the sermon on the way to church, my dad had, you know, pulled me inside and said, you know, I want you to know before your grandpa passed away, he prayed that, my grandpa was a pastor as well, and so was my dad, so I get the third generational thing going. But he said, I want you to know, before your grandpa passed away, he prayed a prayer of blessing over your future ministry. And that was a huge sense of just peace in my life. Of, okay, maybe I passed out the first time, but that calling's still real. And there's a stone of remembrance I have that I can cling to. Uh, when I met Leslie and got to marry her, another one of those stones for each kid is another stone of remembrance. And believe it or not, actually coming here has been an incredible stone of remembrance in my life. Because it's almost, a, almost exactly a year ago when um, you know, I closed down uh, Bridge, was the other church I was a pastor at for about five years. And we kind of left that thinking, have no clue uh, when, how, where we're ever going to get back into ministry again. Um, especially, you know, being here in Reading, because I thought, well, you know, it's not all these churches, they, their positions are filled. They're fine. And uh, so when we spend the year just kind of wandering churches, you know, wondering, all right, well, what's God going to do next? Uh, we actually never, never even talked about whether or not we'd go back into ministry. Um, it was one of those conversations I neither less than I even wanted to have. Until around February, we finally uh, ended up, you know, it's funny. You always have the worst conversations at like midnight when you're tired and want to go to sleep. So we ended up having one of those like two in the morning conversations. And at the time I was working uh, two jobs, so I was working constantly. So uh, we had this whole conversation about whether or not we'd go back into ministry. And, um, and came to the conclusion that, you know, we need to start 
at least looking at what God, what God had next for us. And uh, the next morning was a Sunday, and I had to work that morning. So we said, well, we'll skip church because we're tired. Uh, I've got to work anyways. And then I called Leslie up about 9 that next morning and said, hey, you know what? Uh, cross point starts at 10 o'clock. Your dad's playing bass. Let's just let's go see him play bass. Um, that way we can at least, you know, we'll go to church. And she said, all right, we'll do that. And uh, that was the week when you know, I met Gary and uh, Pastor Gary and Pastor George and found out that they were, you know, starting to pray or pray about a family pastor. And they just kind of went from there. And uh, it became one of those stones of remembrance in my life because for me it's been life-changing. Yet I look back and I try to think, how did that come about? And I can't pinpoint anything I ever did. It was just one of those, one of those God things where without me, he was orchestrating all these different pieces to put me and my family where he wants us. What are those stones of remembrance in your life? Those moments when you look back and say, you know what, that was a moment I knew God was active. That was a moment I knew God was doing something. We remember these stones to remember what God's done. Secondly, we also remember these stones so that we can remember what God can do. Right? It wasn't just a, hey, let, let's remember what God's done. Let's celebrate that. But it was also looking to the future so that any other future struggles they came against, the Israelites were there to remember, the stones were there to remind the Israelites, hey, remember that story? God can still stop water. Right? We, we read the story of Israelites in Jericho and how God told them to march around. And anytime you preach on it, you always have to say, and all the Israelites were like, what? We're just going to march around and blow our trumpets? It's going to fall? Because it's so unbelievable to us. The commands they were given to just march around a city for seven days and then blow trumpets and yell. Because no one wins a battle that way. But I got to believe that they were still high on this, this miracle of the Jordan, and they were willing to do whatever God said. So when he said, walk around another day, they did. With anticipation that something was going to happen. And on that seventh day, there's probably so much built anticipation. That's why they yelled so loud. And then they watched God bring down the walls of Jericho. Walls that they were never going to bring down on their own. That's why the end of Joshua chapter 4, it says he did this. So that all the peoples of the earth, not just the Israelites, all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so you might always fear the Lord your God. It's always been an interesting concept to me, that idea of fearing God. But as I've, the more I've thought about it, the more I've worked through that whole concept through my life, I began to see fearing God doesn't, for us as believers... For us as followers of Jesus, it's not of being afraid of what God can do for us. But fearing God means we're taking courage in knowing what God can do for us. Right, Paul writes, uh, you know, if God's for us, who can be against us? That, that fearing God isn't this fear of, oh man, I did something bad, God's going to come punish me. Right, like I grew up with this mindset, if you read through the Old Testament, and the Israelites get chance after chance after chance, and finally they're exiled. I grew up with this mindset thinking, okay, I know God's going to forgive me, but at some point, right, I've got to be exiled. Like at some point, if I don't get this right, God's just going to exile me until I learn my lesson. And that was kind of my mindset for, for making right choices, was I've got to do enough right things so that I don't get exiled. 
And uh, and I miss that aspect of fearing God. That when we're called to fear God through Scripture, it's taking courage. Like the Israelites took courage, not because they were afraid of God, but because they knew what he could do for them. They knew he could bring down those walls. That Joshua knew he feared God enough and had courage enough to ask God, make the sun stand still so we can win this battle. That, that's the fear of God. is being able to look back at our own stones of remembrance. All those moments in our life where we can look back and say it was only God that allowed that to happen. And then look to our future and look at the challenge, challenges we're facing in our future. And say, I've got courage that God can get me through this. We, look, we can look at our health problems that we face in the future and say, you know what? I've got courage that God can get me through this. We can stress about health care. But for fearing God, we're saying, I've got courage that God can get us through this. We can worry about our finances. But if we're fearing God, we say, I've got courage that God can still provide for us. And ultimately, good or bad, the question is, did you become more like Jesus through it? That bill that had to get paid didn't quite get paid? Are you still in the process of becoming more like Jesus? Right? As Paul's saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's also saying, uh, you know, that, that through all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are in Christ Jesus. And we kind of cling to that verse, and we, and we forget that, that last part in there. We say, well, all right, God's for me, and, and, and I love God. Uh, I'm in him. I'm a follower of Jesus. So I know this is tough, but God's got to work it out for good, except nothing good's come out of it. So is God then really for me? But what Paul goes on and he, sa he says is that his ultimate goal in that good that he's working out in us is that we're becoming more like Jesus. Right? The ultimate good in our life that God's working out isn't that we raise up good kids. Isn't that we grow our church and fill up every seat every Sunday and use up all the rest of our facilities. It's not that you're paying every bill each month and you've got a ton of money in savings and you're set for the rest of your life. It's not that you've got good health. That, that's nice. That's good. But the ultimate good that God's calling us to is that we begin to look more and more like his son. If God's for us, who can be against us? Paul then finishes that chapter in Romans 8, and he says this. Know in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That everything we come up against, there's not a single thing we face that can separate us from God's love. That as we look at fearing God, as we, as we remember our stones, take courage, church. That God's working all things to form you into the image of his son. 
All right, these stones aren't just here to remind us of the good times. They're not just here to remind us of the good old days. Right, we're an old church. We've got a lot of years of history. It's real easy to look back and say, oh yeah, the good old days. I remember those. The, the stones aren't here just to help us remember that. The stones are here to help us look to the future at what God's planning. And ask God, how today, how this morning, am I becoming more like your son so I can further reach people for you? So I can further draw more people to you? So God parts the Red Sea. He gives them this miracle. He reminds his people that he still performs miracles. He's still on their side. After that, he, uh, I say he humbled all of them because he made them uh, circumcise themselves. Uh, but essentially what he did was after that, he, he wanted to remind them who they were. Not just who he was, but he wanted to remind the Israelites who they were as his people. And the sign of that was circumcision. And during those 40 years in the desert, that wasn't practiced. So all the men of age had to circumcise themselves as a sign that they were set apart for God's purpose. And then after that, they celebrated Passover, which again was this memory, this reminder, this stone of remembrance of God's deliverance out of Egypt. Something, again, they hadn't done during those, during those 40 years in the desert. So we see these three things that God does for his people before he takes them to the next step. And as we look at the next step as a church, and where we go from here, we need our stones of remembrance. We need those stories that remind us of just how great and powerful God is. We need that moment where we consecrate ourselves back to God and remind ourselves, you know what? We're still a church. God's promise that the church still rings true, that not even the gates of hell can overcome us. There's still a whole lot of people in the city that need family, that need God's love. And we're called to that. So I guess the question I always get asked then is, in my first three months, is well, what's the plan? Then what are we going to do? You, you tell me the plan, Joel. How are we going to bring in younger families? And, uh, and I don't actually really even know. I actually don't, don't even have a plan from point A to point B. But I've got a challenge for you guys. I've got a lifestyle for you guys to, to, to call you to. And, and the first is that we begin building our, our stones of remembrance. Not to remember the good old days. Because while it's still part of our testimony, if our testimony is no different than it was 10 years ago, is God really working in our lives? So our testimony is something that's constantly changing. And as we begin living out this lifestyle, I want you to realize that the testimony of this church is going to begin to change. And I believe it starts with you as the grandparents. It starts with your role uh, of embracing one of the other guys with Joshua that fought alongside Joshua. His name was Caleb. And, uh, and I want to really challenge you guys with this story. It's one of my favorite stories of why I believe the word old is one of respect. And why I believe the word old is one of such a great calling. 
And uh, the Israelites had basically taken out a lot, the majority of the nations. They basically conquered the land except for a couple areas. So the land was started to be divided up among all the people and all different tribes of Israel. And Caleb comes to Joshua. Caleb, again, was one of the original spies who, God, who Moses sent into the promised land to scout it out. And I remember all the spies came back and told Moses, there's no way there's giants in that land. There's no way we can take it. And Caleb said, wait a second, guys. Remember all the stones we set up along our journey? God's still fighting for us. We can do it. And all the other spies said, no, 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 we can't. And that's when God said, fine, if you guys don't believe me, then you'll wander the desert till you die. But Caleb got the promise then that he would live long enough to enter this land. So he comes to Joshua and he says, now, now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses. While Israel moved about in the desert, so here I am today, 85 years old. All right, this isn't a young guy. This is an old guy, 85 years old. And he says, I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. You know those people that just refuse to age? Like you, you can see it from their personality, their attitude. They haven't aged a bit. This is Caleb. He says, I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. That's pretty cool, right? You guys want to be Caleb, right? Still draw your sword at 85 and go out and lead people into battle. Uh, and, and you know what happened with Caleb? Is he did it? That he was the only tribe of Israel that actually went and completely drove out the other nations as God has commanded. All the other tribes kind of went, started to, and then just settled in with all the nations, which led to problem after problem later on. My challenge in your lifestyle is to begin embracing this role of Caleb. It's to look at yourselves and say, you know what, maybe I am retired from my job. But you're nowhere close to being retired in this life. You're nowhere close to being retired to the calling God's given you. So that might mean putting the recliner legs down and getting back up and begin praying this week about what your burning bush is, right? Moses was 80 when he went to the burning bush. My favorite story of this was about two years ago. Um, I was sitting down with the leadership team at, at Bridge, and I said, you know, really what we need in our church is we need more grandparents. We need these, these Moseses in our church who are still looking for their burning bush, looking for God to call them to something, and aren't just going to sit back and retire to nothing. And uh, the next day, our youth pastor and uh, worship leader went out golfing, and they got put with this uh, 80-year-old guy. And um, about the third hole, this guy, uh, you know, he tells it is, you know, he, he was just you know, hitting the ball perfectly right down the line. Our youth pastor and worship leader were just hitting the ball every other way. So by the third hole, they finally came to him and said, you know what, you're, how old are you? He said, I'm 80. And they said, you're, you're pretty good for 80. And what, so what, what do you used to do? And he says, well, I was trying to be a smart aleck with, you know, these two young kids. So I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just looking for my burning bush in life. I'm looking for what, you know, God has next for me. And our youth pastor, Dan, heard that and remembered what I said. He said, I know what you can do. You can come to our church and you can mentor kids. And this guy over the last two years has become kind of a pastor in my life. Uh, and we've met every Friday for Bible study and, um, and, and he embraced that role. And I believe every one of you can embrace that role of grandparent, of Moses, of Caleb to come in and say, 
I'm not retired yet because God's not done. God's still going to use me. And one of the best ways to do that right now is in your smiles and how you greet us. Like one of the things Leslie and I said when we first came here was, man, that was one of the friendliest churches we've ever been to. Keep doing that. Keep embracing that, that friendliness, that, that welcomeness. And one of the things I promise is you'll see new, new people show up. But more than that, you'll begin to see lives changed by Jesus. Lives that may not be changed if it weren't for you embracing that role of Caleb. I believe you also see a change within your own selves. You might show up on a Sunday morning and someone might be in your seat and your first thought might be, hey, get out of my seat. But the words that come out of your mouth is, hey, great to see you this morning. Can I sit next to you? And you realize, whoa, in this moment right now, God's using me. In this moment right now, God's doing something within my life as well as the life of the person sitting down next to me. The, uh, the role of parents, how we embrace that, honestly becomes a little bit friendlier. It means going out of our comfort zone just a little bit to, to not just go say hi to, to all the typical people we see on the Sunday morning, the people we might be going out to lunch with after the service, but to go in out of our way to go meet the new couple that just showed up with the kids. For moms, embrace the whole frazzled look and just accept, you know what? Your moms, you're in it together. Do it together. And as parents, we begin to realize that we're not just trying to, to suffer through raising kids on our own, but that we're called together as a church to begin raising passionate followers of Jesus. Not just kids that behave really well in Sunday school. Um... And I guess the other challenge then, the last one is, uh, is how you get involved. How you embrace that. Um, and I encourage you, I challenge you. Help out with the kids' ministries. Right? If you want to see the joy, if you want to see the laughter, help out with the kids' ministries. But another reason I'm here today is because of a lady named Marcy, who taught my children's church class for you know, about five years. I learned all my biblical stories from going to her class every Sunday and her going through the Bible timeline. It's an incredibly vital role. Eight of you, if eight of you partnered up two and two and joined with the other people teaching, you'd have to do it six times a, month, six times a year. That's it. Six times a year and you play an incredibly vital role. Not only that, you let Natalie come to the service. You ever see Natalie in here besides the first couple minutes with the kids? She's always teaching. And, and I look at that and I kind of think, well, then we're basically paying someone to stay away from us. And while that's her job title, I believe one of the greatest things we can do is allow her to be in the service once in a while too. Embrace that role of grandparent, of legacy. Help out with the kids. Because if we're going to grow, we're going to need it. And I guarantee you, our best days are coming. That what Jesus wants to do through you is just starting. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, a chance to read your word, a chance to, 
Just reflect on all that you've done in our lives. And God, while you've never fast-forwarded time to get us to where we want to be, while you've never hit a rewind button to take us back to where we want to be, in Scripture, God, we do see that you have a pause button because you made the sun stand still. So, Father, as we look at our lives, at the calling you've given us, no matter how much or how little we have left, Father, I pray that you would cram so much excitement, so much ministry, so much life change into that time that we would just be constantly overwhelmed at what you're doing. That cross point would become a place of healing for hurting broken families. And while that can get messy, I pray we clean that mess up with love. The love that you give. Amen.